0: theyeshiva.net It's a very hard week. It's a very hard week for Razel's friends and never mind for Razel's family. This is a terrible terrible loss. I mean we're dealing here with a person who was 39 years old and uh, a large family of eight amazing and uh, special children. They were living in Israel and due to her illness the family uprooted Itself from the Holy Land and came to the United States of America, relocated here recently to Muncie, to my neck of the woods, and uh, this has been a excruciatingly painful journey for her and for her loved ones. And uh, this past week, she said goodbye to the world, and uh, many a tear has been shed. I want to emphasize, I think, one important point, but it's sometimes overlooked. And that is, one might think logically that when a soul leaves the world, it's just disconnected. The body is interred into the earth, and the soul goes back to its its spiritual source. And yet, it's actually a revolutionary idea in Judaism that when I or you sitting in this world on our planet, in my home, in your home. And I learn Torah in memory of this soul. I learn Mishnayos for this neshama. I give tzedakah, I give charity for this neshama. I do a mitzvah for this neshama. I say a prayer for this soul. I do a good deed for this soul. I bring in light into the world for this neshama. I say Kaddish for the neshama. Or whatever the method is, it actually has a tremendous impact on the soul. You would think, how does that exactly happen? I'm sitting here in my room, and I'm learning something. I'm learning a Mishnah, or I'm learning something else of Torah, or I'm helping somebody, or I'm giving charity. I'm saying Kaddish, I'm saying a Tefillah, I'm saying a capital For this Neshama, what's the connection? And yet, in the intricate web and interconnectedness of all of humanity with our Source, In the intricate unity between heaven and earth, both vertically and horizontally, these relationships are very profound. And a person, even a stranger, never mind a family member or a friend, does something for an neshama, it literally impacts, transforms, elevates, inspires, helps. The soul, wherever it is, just like I can help you in this world, I could connect to you. I can support you. I can be here for you physically, financially, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and you can be here for me. In a similar vein, that connectedness does not cease even if we fail to be able to see it or sense it with one of our five senses. And that's the impact that every person can have on anishama, giving it nachas, giving it delight. Giving it joy, giving it pleasure, giving it love, sending our love, sending our 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 connection, our affection to that soul. And it works both ways. It's a two-way street. That soul sends its love and its energy and its brightness down here to earth. And in the case of Razel Zucker, we know how much light. She shed and she radiated through her 39 short years. That light doesn't die. That light continues to live. It continues to live by the impact of her soul on our world. It continues to live in the lives and in the hearts of each one of her eight children. It continues to live in the life of her husband. It continues to live in the life of her parents, in the life of her brothers, in the life of her sisters many of them who I know very well, very, very uh, special people. And uh, it continues to live in the lives of her friends. Let me share with you a story, my dearest friends, a story that I think is extremely relevant to this evening about a Jew who once came to the Kloisenbeger Rebbe, the Kloisenberger Rebbe was a Jew named Rabbi Yekusiel Yehuda Halberstam, Zechetzadik Livrocha. He was one of the great Hasidic masters of the previous generation. He passed away. Tammuz, I think it was Tess Tammuz Tovshenun Dalad. The ninth of Tammuz, if I'm not mistaken, 1994. The Kloisenberger Rebbe lost a wife and 11 children in Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp. He himself was at the verge of death, not once, but numerous times. He survived. The Kleisenberger Rebbe rebuilt his life. He remarried. He had children. The two present Kleisenberger Rebbes today, one in Borough Park, one in uh, Kiryat Sanz in Etanya in Israel, are children of his from his second marriage, post-Holocaust marriage. But he used to speak a lot about his experiences and his memories. Many survivors did not speak, but he spoke. A Jew once came to him, and a Jew asked him, how did you continue living in the face of such adversity, in the face of such Profound agony, pain, suffering, unfathomable tragedies that befell you. We don't have the words, we don't have the quill, the pen to capture what a person like the Kleisenberger Rebbe and so many other Jews endured. I mean, you know, you think about it. It's surreal. It's still hard to believe today, 75 years later, 80 years later. In one day, a wife and 11 children to the gas chambers. How do you go on? He asked him, how do you go on? And he was a motivated person. He didn't just go on in despair. He built. He built a beautiful community. He built a beautiful family. He built the famed Laniato hospital in Italia. He built the famous Mifal Ashas. He was a mentor to hundreds, to thousands. He was a teacher. He was a Rebbe. He was a Tzaddik. He said, how? You know, to be a leader, you have to be enthusiastic. You have to be inspired. To inspire others, you have to be inspired yourself. can't fake it. You can't fake it for too long. So he asks him, he says, Kloisenberger Rebbe, Tzanz Kloisenberger Rebbe, tell me how you did it. Kloisenberger Rebbe looked at him, And he said two words. He had this uh, extraordinary accent. (inaudible) B'domayich chayi. B'domayich chayi. Which is a quote from Ezekiel. Yecheskel, I think it's chapter 16 or 17. We say it in the Haggadah, the night of Pesach. And it basically describes the night before the exodus of Egypt. The Jewish people are compared to a fetus, which just which is which is just emerging from the mother's womb. It's without clothes, va'at area It's bedecked in blood. It just emerged. It still has to be cleaned up. The umbilical cord cut, and ultimately mature and develop. But that's the night, the moment of Exodus, when the Jewish people are being extricated from the womb of their tyrants, in exile, it's like a state of pregnancy, and now they are emerging, they're emerging, emerging into a new identity, a new people, a new nation, and the prophet Yechezkel says, I said to you, in your blood you shall live, in your blood you shall live, the sages associate this with the fact, That the Jewish people that night offered the Passover offering and they sprinkled its blood on the doors of their home. That was one form of blood. They also circumcised themselves. They went through a bris. That was another form of blood. And bedamayich Chayi, through this blood you shall live. But the Kalei Rebbe didn't give this long explanation. He just said two words. bedamayich Chayi. This Jew, his visitor, naturally thought... That the Kleisenbegareba was sharing with him the following insight. And the insight was that the Jewish people do not allow the blood that they observe to destroy them. Rather, for them, the blood and the sacrifices that they make become an impetus, an impetus for a new birth, for a new redemption, for a new reality. They don't see their blood being spilled as just a vain experience with no meaning, with no hope, with no purpose, with no significance. Thank you. And therefore, they don't allow themselves to go into despair. And despite the pain, and despite the suffering, and despite the bloodshed, they lift themselves up and they say, For me, this is a calling for renewed life, for renewed vigor for deeper resilience, for deeper courage, for deeper faith, for deeper commitment. This is how he understood what the Kloizenberg Rebbe meant, that he did not allow the tragedies that he experienced and observed to kill him, to destroy him, so that his blood would also be shed, if not physically, emotionally. No, for him it was a call to rebirth, a call for, to rejuvenation, reinvigoration, to reinvent himself and his family and the Jewish people. This is how the person understood. So the Kloisen begerebbe asked him, do you understand what I'm saying? He said, yeah. But the you're telling me that the blood that the Jewish people saw is an impetus and a catalyst and a springboard for a new life, for new vigor. He said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. He said, what did you mean? So, Kloizen told him something incredibly, incredibly profound and moving. He said, Bedamayich chayi, I'm referring to something else completely. Referring to a scene in Leviticus, Parsha Shemini, It's the first day of the month of Nissan. The tabernacle, the sanctuary has been inaugurated for the first time, Chanukah Samishkin. The divine presence at last has descended among the Jewish people. It was a moment of extraordinary ecstasy, joy and sanctity. And then tragedy struck. The two oldest sons of Aaron, the high priest, Nodav and Avihu, died. Talk about, talk about an experience that smacks one in the face of such joy. This was Aaron's greatest day. He was the high priest, and suddenly he lost two children. Moshe tried to comfort him. His brother Moshe, the uncle of these boys, the uncle of Nadav and comforts him, and he says to him, "Who Hashem What you have seen now is basically a manifestation of the words that God said. I will become sanctified through my closest ones. As Rashi says, Moshe said, I thought it was you or me. Now I see that they are greater than you and even greater than me. Well, he didn't say even, they're greater than you and they're greater than me. This is what he tells his brother. And you know what Aaron says? Aaron doesn't say thank you. You know what Aaron does? Two words. Aaron was silent. He was quiet. He was mute. He didn't say a word. Did he agree with Moshe? Did he disagree with Moshe? Later, there's an argument between him and Moshe. There's a disagreement about the burning of a certain goat. Moshe said, You shouldn't. Aaron said, Aaron felt you should. Moshe said, here he doesn't argue with them. He doesn't agree with them. Did Moshe comfort him? Were Moshe's words meaningful to him? Moshe and Aaron were very close. They were tight brothers. Two prophets. Two words. Vayidem Aaron. Aaron was quiet. He was quiet. What type of silence was this? Was this a silence of submission? Was it a silence of There were no words. The pain was so profound, he couldn't say anything. Was it a different type of silence? The Kloizen Rebbe says, (inaudible) Bidamayich Chayi, Bidamayich comes from the word (inaudible) Vayidayim. Vayidoim Aaron means Aaron was silent. (inaudible) Bidamayich Chayi means you shall live through your silence. That's how I continue to live. I continue to live through my silence. And knows that some experiences in life, you cannot wrap your brains around them. They are too gigantic. They are too painful. They are too devastating to be able to try to assimilate them into your intellectual faculties to try to make sense out of them, to try to make yourself feel comfortable. Truths have cultivated the ability for vayidaim for silence. Silence doesn't mean I don't care. Silence means that I respect the magnitude of the mystery. Silent means that I realize that I am in the presence of, of something that completely transcends my faculties. Silence means the recognition that I am vulnerable and humble in the presence of a story that started far before me and will end long after me. One that transcends my finite perspective and vision of reality. Silence is the ability of the Jewish people To remain fully present in life, fully involved in life, to have the ability to continue to laugh and to cry, to dance and to grieve, to celebrate and to suck the marrow out of life without running away, without detaching. Not because I don't feel the pain, not because I understand why, not because I have rationalizations and justifications and explanations, Because a Jew knows how to cultivate the art of silence. Silence means the recognition that life is a mystery. Death is a mystery. And a finite brain simply does not have the tools to contain infinity. I look at it I know, I know that there's meaning. I know that there's purpose. I know that I'm not a random mutation. And I know that the world was conceived in love. And that love is the consciousness that vibrates through existence. It's the fuel of existence. But I still cannot make peace with it. And therefore... I'm silent in the presence of such magnitude of such infinity.. Somebody once asked another Holocaust survivor. whom I had the privilege of knowing Professor Eli Wiesel. Eli Wiesel. Eli Wiesel was a close friend of my father al ofvra. And somebody once asked Dr. Wiesel, he said, "Is there a tradition?" Of silence in Judaism and Elie Wiesel responded yes there is a tradition of silence in Judaism but we don't talk about it what a profound answer this is what the Kleisenberger Rebbe was telling this Jew Bedamayich chayi. Aaron's silence allowed him to continue to function to continue to be positive, to continue his mission. So the Kloizen Begareb turns to this Jew and says, you asked me how we rebuilt our lives? The answer is, B'damayich hayi, ha'yi, With the D'mayich, with the and with the silence of Aaron, with silence we continue to have a life. There are no answers. There are no solutions to devastation. There are no easy, comfortable ways of making peace with unthinkable tragedy we cannot we don't understand we cannot understand perhaps we don't even want to understand because our job is not to understand the reason for pain our job is to protest pain our job is to heal the world from pain our job is to pray for the day when pain will be eliminated not to make peace with people's pain It is a wrong attitude to try to get caught up in the need to understand, to make sense. We don't try to understand, rather we focus, what do I need to do now? What is my mission? It's this silence that allows me to be present and to be positive, to be upbeat, to have faith and to move on in life. For some, it's the silence of submission. For others, it's a silence that includes... A lot of questions. For others, it's a silence of protest. This experience, too, is one that is extremely painful. How many people have experienced pain in the last few months? This coronavirus pandemic has claimed the lives of so many precious, precious people in our community so many people you know, so many people I know. Relatives, friends, mentors. And every tragedy is, leaves a void that is that is very profound. But razel's death created a sadness all its own. Her age, her family, her young children. The grief is very profound. And when the wound is so fresh, it behooves us to remember. Bedamayich chayi. We live with the bedamayich of ayidim aren, of iron silence. Sometimes silence is not weakness. Silence sometimes is the deepest strength. Siyog lachach The Perkei says, the fence, the crown around wisdom is silence. And the great masters explained that silence is sometimes far deeper than any wisdom. You know why? Because wisdom grasps what you know. And silence allows you to touch the unknowable. Knowledge, wisdom, perception allows me to experience that which I know. But how much do I know? How much can I understand? Silence gives me access to the Infinite mystery of life gives me access to the unknowable. Little story, beautiful story. Ah. Such a geshmaka I have to tell you, I didn't see this story in Chabad sources. I saw this story in, in non-Chabad sources about the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya Rebbe Shnei Zaman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad. The story goes like this: There was a wedding of a relative of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya. And as often in Jewish weddings, they invited a Batchen. It was a famous Batchen, great comedian. Or then he wasn't really called a comedian, but a sharp Jew who had a gift of gab and who had to compose great prose and songs in order to bring joy to the groom and the bride and the families and the dancing. And he was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, and he was brought into the wedding to do Batchanas. Now there is a problem. To stand in front of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, and say jokes or share your brilliance was very, you very, uh, un- it would be very awkward for anybody, never mind for a follower, for a student who had some appreciation of in whose presence he is. So what did he do? He took a little extra l'chaim in order to inebriate himself a little bit, to become a little tipsy. You know, Dick, so he should be able to... Uh, Joke around uninhibitedly. And he starts off, and he looks at the Alter Rebbe, and this is how the Batcham is, this is how his so-called jokes at the end of the wedding, this is how they developed, this is how he began. He said, Rebbe, I decided today that there's no big difference between you and me. We're more or less in the same boat. People were shocked. The Chassid gets up and says, there's no difference between you and me. The Alter Rebbe, you have to understand, was one of the greatest minds in Jewish history. One of the greatest authorities in the world of Halacha and in the world of Kabbalah. And in the world of Jewish philosophy. dealing with an incredible mind. Rabbi Yosheber once said, and he comes from the real Lithuanian stock, from the family of Reb Chaim Valozhiner. Chaim Valoshin was the famous student of the Vilna Gaon. Rabbi Soloveitchik once said in Boston in 1969 that since the Rambam, there was no Ish Haseichel, there was no man of such towering intellect who embodied such intellect like the Alter Rebbe, like the Balatanya. However you want to explain it, I'm quoting Rabbi Soloveitchik. I heard it on tape. In any case, he tells the Alter Rebbe at the wedding, I decided there's no big difference between you and I. I'll say it in Yiddish and then I'll translate. He said... Das, was ihr weiss nicht, weiss ich euch nicht. Das, was ich weiss, weist ihr euch. So, da a paar Sachen. Was ihr weiss, du nicht weiss nicht. Aber was ist der Erdach von dem, was ihr weiss, lega bei dem, was ihr weiss nicht. He said, Rebbe, I decided there's no great disparity between you, and I'll tell you why. Whatever I know, you know. Whatever you, do, you don't know, I also don't know. <laughs> so what's the difference? What I know, you know. What you don't know, I also don't know. So what's the difference? difference is there's a couple of things, or maybe more than a couple of things, that you know and I don't know. Granted. But now I ask you, Rebbe, how do you compare that which you do know relative to that which you don't know? And tears came down from the altar Rebbe's eyes. How do you compare that which you know relative to that which you don't know? So you see, my friends, words, ideas are amazing. They allow us, they allow us a glimpse into that which we know, into that which we may not know to know, which we may not know today, but we'll know tomorrow, or that which, which we can at least access on some level. It, it, it beacons to us even a little glimmer of it. Silence. Silence. Faith. Allows us to touch that which we don't know. Allows us to touch infinity. It doesn't make us naive. It doesn't make us oblivious. It doesn't make us deaf to the realities that we experience. It just allows us to appreciate and experience and touch the truth that life is infinitely larger than that which I will ever be able to contain in the two or three pounds jello, in this two or three pound jello called my brain. As brilliant as a brain is, it's a creation by God, and the finite creation cannot really grasp the infinite Creator. And now, I want to share with you a teaching of the Balsham Tov. is coming. The Balsham Tov's yard is on Shavuos. Balsham passed away. Shvuas Tovkov Chov. Shvuas 1760. I read this teaching on Shabbos. Shabbos morning. Before davening. We daven at home. Before davening, I was... Learning some of the Balshemtov's teachings in his Sefer Keser Shem Tov. and I came across this teaching, and I'm going to learn it with you. I want to share it with you. It meant so much to me, and just due to a technical challenge, I didn't have a chance to post it before the class. But God willing, when I finish, I will find it on the net, on the internet, and post it. On this class. So if you want to see it inside, it's Kessir Shemtiv, Section 6, Simon Vov. If you go to the Yeshiva.net, where this lecture is presently playing, in addition to Zoom, there will be a PDF or a source sheet near the video, and you'll be able to study it inside. I chose this teaching because I recently learned it, because it's from the Balshemtiv and Shwis is coming, and also because it relates to the story of Moshe's interaction with the Jewish people following Matan Torah, so the Baal Shem Tov says, and I'm going to read inside. It's a short piece, and I'm going to explain. Okay. So, pasuk and dvarim, perik aleph pasuk yud Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, remember, he delegates, he appoints officials and ministers and mentors and leaders to be able to help the Jews with their issues and conflicts and dilemmas. But he said, something that is too difficult for you, something that is too hard for you, bring to me, bring it to me, and I'll try to help and solve the problem. The Balshemtiv said in the name of the Ramban. This is Keser Shemtiv Simen Vav. The source of it is Ben Pyrrhus Yosef in the introduction. Ben Pirus Yosef, which records many teachings of the Balshemtiv in the introduction. He brings this Balshemtiv in the name of the Ramban. Ramban is Nachmanides, Ben Nachman, who lived in Spain in the 13th century. He was one of the great Jewish leaders, halachists, philosophers, biblical commentators, Talmudists, physicians of the time. So the Baal Shem Tov said in the name of the Ramban, Sheh Tzivu Lib'nai, the Ramban told his son, the Ramban told his son, "Sometimes in life you may have a doubt how you should do something. There are perspectives that dictate you should follow this path. There are other perspectives that dictate you should follow another path. Path, and you're in a dilemma. You're confused. There's uncertainty. You hit what we would call a fork in the road." Literally, there's two opposite paths and you don't know what to do. Or, you may have a doubt if something is a mitzvah or something is not a mitzvah. Should you do it or should you abstain from it? Not only that, sometimes you have a personal bias or agenda, you want to do something, and therefore your mind will manipulate you into thinking that this is actually a permissible thing to do when really it's forbidden and destructive. Sometimes in life there is uncertainty. Do I go this way? Do I go that way? A decision I may have to make in terms of my marriage, with my family, with my business, with my employees, with myself, with my colleagues. What's the right thing to do? This way or that way? Is this the right thing? Is this a wrong thing? Is this actually a mitzvah? Or maybe my mind is playing games with me. Maybe I just have another agenda, and that is causing me to gravitate towards this position. What do you do? So the Ramban says to his son, you must be able to try to remove your personal bias from this. You have to get rid of the self-consciousness. He gives two examples. Your joy and your ego, your glory. Can you get this out of the picture? That's how you have to think about it. You have to be able to lift yourself up from personal biases, from personal agendas, from my own personal entanglement with the issue. And he says, then, Hashem will let you know the truth, and you'll be able to go with confidence in a certain path. Says the Baal Shem Tev, this is what Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the Jewish people. V'zeo shekosav, this is what he means. Hadover Ashayiksha Mikem. she yik she mik hem she ein Mikem yo id al kein tesal ku mid over ze ve ta kri this idea is intimated in the words of Moshe Rabbeinu. Sometimes there's a situation in life that imposes a lot of difficulties and uncertainty. You don't know what to do. Should I do it? Should I not do it? You know why? Because it's mikem. Because there's too many toxic entanglements here. There's a lot here. There, you have a lot of personal fears or agendas, conscious or unconscious, and they are creating this uncertainty. You can't see things clearly. So Moshe is not just telling them there is a difficulty. He explains why, because me can. You cannot see it clearly. You have to free up the space. Right now, there is too much fog in your life. Fog, fear, obsession, guilt, guilt, whatever else you want to use for fog. But there's a lot of fog. You can't see the sun. You don't have clarity. What do you do? You have to be able to cultivate the courage of not taking this personally, of going to a place where you're trauma-free, stress-free, ego-free, agenda-free, insecurity-free, get out of it. And Moshe says, Takrivun elai. You have to be able to come close to me. What does it mean, come close to me? Moshe Rabbeinu is a servant of God. You have to be able to ask yourself, what does Hashem want from me at this moment? The question has to be, what does God want without other agendas and other perceived or delusional enjoyments? And therefore, gains that I'm personally going to get from it. Then, Ushamativ, moisha says, I'll be able to hear, I'll hear what you're saying. What's Ushamativ? I'll be able to imbue the person with the right thoughts and the right perceptions of how to live. Short teaching of the Baal What does this mean in our life? What it means in our life is sometimes I'm in a situation and there's confusion. It's a painful situation. There's a dilemma. Again, it could be in your own life, your own future, your family, your relationships, relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, your relationship with somebody else in your family, your relationship with somebody else. And you really have a lot of uncertainty. You don't know what to do. It's so important not to get personal and not to be able to take this personal. Your child tells you something. My child tells me something or doesn't tell me something. And I could become so personal. And there's now a personal vendetta or a personal issue. My security, my sense of confidence, my sense of macho-ness, my sense of fatherliness, my sense of manlyhood, whatever, has been damaged. And I make decisions from the wrong place because I'm living in the fog of my own personal pain. Is it possible for me to get out of this place? Don't take it personal. It's not about you. Sometimes, when I'm living with inner, inner stuff, inner garbage, everything becomes personal. I can't even see the reality from another person's perspective. I can't see the reality from a clear perspective. So the B'cham says, Moshe is saying, you're going to know what to do, but the way for you to find out what to do is to really work on yourself and say, for example, with children, these are God's children. I was entrusted with the unique privilege of raising and polishing these diamonds. In another relationship that you have that may be difficult and turbulent, this is not about my own insecurities and my own egos. Can I extricate myself from that and be able to really, really tune in to the divine mission and the divine perspective at this moment? And then... You free yourself up. And you can take a path that brings you to your destination. It brings you to a very, very powerful place. And the reason is because you had the courage to be able to take yourself out from this type of fog. Just close the door, okay? Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Could you bring me water? Could you bring me water? Thank you. It's not an easy thing. It takes a lot, a lot of courage. And here again, I want to mention Razel. She was a person who struggled. I'm not only talking about the illness. She had various struggles in life. But one of her greatest virtues and her greatest attributes was she never allowed pettiness and various dysfunction that she observed internally or externally to define her. She allowed herself to dream big, to think with expansiveness, to operate with an expansive state of consciousness, to actually see herself as a divine ambassador in the world, to see herself as an agent of God's infinite love, and therefore not to get caught up in the natural insecurities and traumas and fears and toxicity and garbage and filth that skeletons and demons and ghosts that many of us, I don't want to say all of us, but many of us vibrate, vibrate through our system. She can get out of the mikem, and therefore out of the Yiksha. Takrivun Thank you so much. Thank you. It's water, yeah? And therefore, walk a path that was upbeat, that was positive, that was invigorating, and that brought radiance to her and to so many other people's lives. May her memory and soul continue to serve It's a source of blessing and inspiration to all of you, to all of us, to the family that's here with us. I say, May God comfort you among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. To Razel's immediate family, we say we have no words, but you're in our thoughts, you're in our prayers. It's a very painful time. To Razel's husband, Razel's children, we know there are no words. We just pray that you have the strength and the resilience to be able to deal with the situation in the best way possible. And I know that Razel's light will continue to shine brightly in the heart and soul of each one of her eight diamonds. I want to also thank everybody who contributed to the fund that was created for Razel Zucker's family due to the financial difficulties and economic hardships. Thank you for all of those who donated. And I want to make a request and use this opportunity for those who did not or even those who did to increase your contribution for this special fund, Razel Tzuka, you could find it online. I thank you. And now I'm going to go to questions. So I'm opening up here the chat We'll do the questions from the Zoom. If you want to write your questions, you can write your questions on the chat. If you're on the Zoom, if you want to send your questions through the yeshiva.net, that's fine. You can come to the video page with Rezal Sukkar's video, and you will see there is a place to ask your question. And I will, God willing, try to take as many questions as we can. Okay, wow. So somebody writes as follows I watched this brave woman struggle with her illness the past year, always a smile. That's true. Hashem should give Beryl, who himself with his siblings was orphaned of a mother at a young age, the strength to carry on and raise these children. Thank you to Chesky and Rachel Litzman who opened their house to this family this past year in Muncie or longer. Packing into their home, some 25 plus people. Yes, a big shout out to Chesky and Rachel Litzman here in Muncie, who did something incredible. Razel should be a good to better for her family. Ask for Mashiach to come already so we could be swiftly rejoined. Very well, Reb Moshe. Thank you, for, thank you for sharing that. And now let's go to the chat. I see a few questions. Okay. Let me go to the top. Okay. There's a question. When a person passes away, does the neshama forget about his or her family and friends? So this is a very interesting discussion, and it's discussed a lot in the books. But according to many, many sources, the neshama does not forget. And... Even though this is debated, but the conclusion of most of the authorities in spirituality over the generations is that the neshama remains deeply connected to all of its loved ones. Not only does it not forget about its family and friends, but on the contrary, the soul rejoices and celebrates with its families and friends. When the soul sees the continuous life and joy and celebration of its loved ones, the soul celebrates. And conversely, the soul grieves with the pain of its family and friends. When a person passes away, next question, when the neshama comes back, does the neshama come back as all the previous lives they led? That's an interesting question. And the answer to that, according to Kabbalah, is that every neshama, when it comes back, it brings with itself a lot of the experiences that it had, including scars and wounds and blessings and accomplishments of previous gener- previous reincarnations. And sometimes, yes, we carry things not even from our own life, but from previous lives. That's what makes life so Interesting. And yet, the important thing to understand is that sometimes there will be things that in life, for you, they're pretty easy to achieve. For others, they're difficult. But there is something for you that is very hard to achieve. And that is usually one of the signs that this is one of the purposes why your soul came down. And that's why your negative inclination creates so much resistance. When a person... Next question. How can I feel happy if things aren't going well? For example, people passing away leaving a whole family behind, and fortunately many, many other sad things. How can anybody be happy? The answer to your question is (laughs) silence, but I am going to say something. It depends how you define happiness. If you define happiness as just the feeling everything is dandy and... And I could just be frivolous without any responsibility and without anything sitting in me and without any concerns and without any duties. That's a whole different type of happiness. That's not real happiness. That's more frivolousness. Let me tell you what happiness is. Happiness is the deep knowledge that I am in the right place, in the right time, doing the right thing. It's that inner satisfaction an inner contentment and wholesomeness that comes from living a life of alignment. When I know that my life is aligned with my purpose, I am not intimidated by my fears. I don't surrender to mediocrity. I don't surrender to despair, pettiness, small-mindedness, egotism, and toxicity. But I remain aligned to my true purpose. And I know that where I am is exactly where I have to be, the place is right, the time is right, and now I can choose to do the right thing. That is an inner sense of connection and joy that can prevail and pervade us during all circumstances of life. And that's the reason it says you should serve God with joy. <inaudible> Chapter 100 in Psalms, we say it every morning. Serving God is 24-7 hours, 24-7, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. But some of those moments are not easy. Sometimes we're dealing with very difficult situations, sometimes with very sad situations. And yet that is also part of God's service. And over there we also say there is joy. Because joy doesn't necessarily mean there's no pain. Joy means there may be pain, but there is an inner conviction that I'm doing the right thing in these circumstances, that I am not being a victim, I am being a leader, that I am standing up to my responsibility, from this comes an inner sense of contentment and joy, even if I'm confronting a situation that's difficult. What are practical steps and ways you can take to live in the way we just learned, not taking it personally? Ooh, if you could give me an answer to this question, (laughs) I'll be very grateful to you. You're asking a, a very profound question. How do you not take things personally in life? The answer for this is, it's very important when you wake up in the morning to meditate and pray for this. This is something you daven for. You have to tune in to your innermost core, your innermost soul, which is a part of divine infinity and which doesn't have to take things personally. My animal soul takes things personally because it feels threatened. It's like a little puppy that feels threatened and scared. So therefore I have to take it personally and I have to take revenge and I have to get angry and I have to lash out at you. But my godly soul is one with cosmic unity. My godly soul is aligned with infinite energy. I don't have to take it personally. I could come from a place of empowerment and strength. Not because I don't care. I care very deeply, but my response is coming from my innermost values, not from my external impulses of pain. So if you could spend time every single morning meditating and praying and tuning into this part of yourself, it empowers you during the day to live a life in which you take things less personally, and you really operate from a much more expansive consciousness. Excellent question. Can someone do a mitzvah l'zchus another person who is not an ancestor? What we find in the Medrash, in the name of Kiv is with a son. Of course, when a child does something for a soul, it has special significance. But any person who does a mitzvah, or says a prayer, or learns, or gives tzedakah for a neshama, it has a tremendous impact. And because remember, on a soul level, we're not strangers. As it says in Tanya chapter 32, we're brothers, we're sisters. All the souls are one. The bodies represent distinct manifestations of the soul. But our neshamas are one. We are organically connected. So when I do something for somebody else's soul, it's not even somebody else's soul. We are deeply interconnected and integrated. On that level, you're not a stranger. Of course, there's a special relationship with a son, special relationship with a daughter, special relationship with a sibling, special relationship with a parent. No question about that. Esther asks a question. Is silence always good? And the answer is absolutely not. That's why I speak. <laughs> if silence was always good, I wouldn't speak. Silence is sometimes bad. For example, when somebody observes abuse, injustice, cruelty, sadism, barbarity, silence is a crime. Silence in the face of evil is a crime. I become an accomplice to those who are afflicting pain on others if I am silent. Sometimes the only appropriate response is words and loud words coming from the depth of my heart. I am referring in this lecture to silence that is grappling with the unknowable with infinity. I'll tell you a very beautiful story. There was once a rabbi who came to visit the Labavitcher Rebbe. And the Rebbe s- requested from him to speak up about certain issues that were going on in his environment to be able to help the situation. So he quotes a, a statement in Gemara and Talmud. Mila besela mishtuke betrain." A word is worth a selah. Sella was a significant currency. Let's say a word is worth a dollar. Silence is worth two dollars. He tells the Rebbe, I don't speak. Word is a dollar. Silence is double. And the Rebbe looked at him and said, that's true. That's true. But if you remain silent all day, you only make two dollars. If you speak all day, every word you make a dollar. And his point was, silence Is much deeper than words. But sometimes the situation calls on you to speak and speak out with honesty and with decisiveness and with fearlessness and resolve and determination. Why can't the family visit the resting place the first year? There are different reasons given for this. One of the reasons, if I recall correctly, I haven't looked this up in a while, so I'm speaking from a distant memory, so I may be mistaken here, but I think one of the reasons is that during the first year, you see, there's different stages in the soul's departure from this world. It's a very, very delicate and intricate process. That's why there's also different stages in mourning. There's the stage when the soul just left. Till burial, that's one stage. There's the stage after burial, the first three days. There is Shiva, seven days. There's 30 days. There's 11 months. There's 12 months. Every stage of mourning parallels a certain journey of the soul. During the first year, the soul is still very deeply connected to the body and to the resting place because it's still on this very, very powerful journey and transition from a tangible, concrete world into an intangible, transcendent world. And therefore, when the family comes, it creates an unnecessary anguish for the soul, which is still struggling with this transition from one world to another world. So it's respect to the journey of the soul. So that's why even if they go to the cemetery, they could come, but they remain a certain distance. I think it's around between around six or seven feet, from the grave. Can we communicate with the departed? When we want to share with the departed, do they hear us? Listen, we could communicate. Do they speak back to us? I'm I'm not from the people who have such experiences, and I don't know about such experiences, and you have to be a little suspicious with these areas and be sensitive. But we could certainly communicate with them. That's why when we learn Mishnayis, and I say this is for the neshama, of this and this person, say Razel, Taiba Razel, Basra or somebody else. This is a form of communication with the soul. So yes, we could communicate. When a soul like Razel's comes down and enters our imperfect world, but is really too good for our world, it makes us nervous to be too good for our own good. How do we reconcile doing and being our best and our anxiety of being too good for our own good? <laughs> I see you're a good person. This is a question from Shana. And the answer is, this is more anecdotal when we say, you know, God takes the good, don't be too good. Of course it doesn't work that way. Razel was not taken from our world because she was a good person. Because Razel was not supposed to come down to our world. Because Razel was too good for our world. We don't know why Razel was taken from us. Razel's soul had a shlichus, it had a mission. We are saddened and broken that that mission ended much too soon from our perception. 39 years, and with such a beautiful family, and a large family, and such young kids. We have no words for it, but we don't know the reason. To be able to say it's because this person is too good, and this person is too righteous, and this person is too holy, who knows about these things? I don't think we have the ability, and the know-how, and the right to be able to say, you know ooh, if you'll be bad, you'll live for a long time and if you're good, you're gonna die young. this has no uh, this doesn't make sense and it doesn't have any source in Judaism or in the tradition of our heart. so you're not good because you're not you're not bad because you're gonna live long and you're not gonna avoid being good because you're afraid to die. I think that entire calculation doesn't make much sense. look at it in a very different way. We are each here to serve. We are ambassadors of the divine in this world. And we have a mission. And I want to live my mission to the fullest. And you want to live your mission to the fullest. And our mission is to radiate light, our inner light, to the world around us. To bring unity into fragmentation. To reveal the oneness of divinity in our cosmos. To reveal the truth that we are all one. All the Jewish people are one. All of humanity is one. The entire universe is one. That is our job, and each one of us has the power to reveal that through our unique contribution. That should be our focus in life. I worry a lot about the kids. They behave best with their mother. Razel really enjoyed putting her kids to sleep at night. She was the atmosphere in the house. Who will appreciate the kids? Who will enjoy the children like Razel did? She understood them best. She so much inspired me. I worry about her children. I worry about them. She made sure they davened. They gave charity. The children had a special respect for her. They listened to her. I didn't see anyone with the same energy as her when they watched her children. And watching her children pains me. There is literally no substitute. Yeah. There is no substitute for a mother. There is no substitute for a mother. <laughs> I don't have what to say. I'll tell you a line I once read in an article in my father's newspaper, the Algemeiner. it was a Yid, Rabbi Goldschmidt, some of you remember him. His father, Eb. Moshe Goldschmidt, his mother, they were axed in the Hevrim pogrom in 1929. He was a little kid. And his mother was dying in the hospital. And he said this years later, he said, my mother looked at me before her death and she said, a mother doesn't live forever, but she also never dies. Those were, I think, the last words he heard from his mother. And the real question you bring up is, who's going to replace Reisel? And I don't have an answer. I don't know that anybody can replace. I think all of us, anybody who's close, anybody who can help let's offer our help but not through worrying and anxiety and, and just sitting in my house and quetching but if there's something concrete one can do to assist the husband the father in this situation and the other members of the family yes this is the moment to act and at least to try to do what we can do to help everyone according to their own capacity this one can give a contribution. And this one can get involved in different ways. And this one can help with a home. And this one can help with other stuff. And here's my little advice to you, if I may, unsolicited advice. Often people come to a person in a difficult situation and they say, by the way, if you ever need help, call me. Now, what do you want a widower should do? Call you every Thursday and say, I'm overwhelmed. There's no food in the house. Somebody has to go to the doctor. Somebody has an earache. Somebody has... (laughs) A problem with his teeth, I need a dentist. Somebody else is having a stomachache and somebody else has the flu. I'm talking about the other flu. What should I do? You think they're going to call you? Don't come to somebody in need and say, when you need help, call me. Tell them how you're going to help them and help them. Don't ask them, oh, when you need something, call me. (laughs) They're not going to do that in most cases. So if you really want to help, let's help. Call the right people who are connected and help. And we have to remember, God calls himself the father of orphans. Avi There's a reason for it. There is something irreplaceable about a father and a mother. Those who lost fathers and mothers as young children will tell it to you. There's something irreplaceable. And God himself says, I know that. And I have to be the father of these orphans. And we hope and pray that these children who were given this difficult, difficult challenge will be able to find within themselves the light of their mother and the light of God to be able to build their lives in the healthiest and most productive way and every one of us in our own way has to be there to be able to support not just in words and thoughts and wishes but in real, real ways in authentic ways. Let me just. These are the questions on chat. I don't see any question. I don't see any other questions on chat. So if there are other questions, please put them in right now. I'm just going to check if there are any other questions that came in in the other, in the other place. Okay. I would like to send charity. Please text me how. Um, so the way to send charity for this family. You can go to charity.com, that's C-H-A-R-I-D-Y.com, charity.com, slash Zucker, Z-U-C-K-E-R, Zucker. So again, charity, www.charity.com, right? And then after that, slash Zucker, Z-U-C-K-E-R, and over there, you their name will come up, slash 23140, and you could donate next question what should we do with our first fruits in modern times to sanctify them regarding the Omer well this is another topic and you could discuss this with your local Orthodox rabbi about um, the mitzvah of bikurim the way it applies uh, the way it applies uh, nowadays generally we need the besa miktash to bring Bikurim. Although the Gemara does say that when you bring a gift to a Talmud Chacham, it is a concept of Bikurim. Okay, let's do another few questions here. Why are the Jews called the chosen nation if they weren't asked for the Torah first? Excellent question. The answer is because they are the choosing nation. More than being the chosen nation... They were the nation who chose. They're the choosing nation. Excellent question. What's the point of davening for people to feel better if we see that many people prayed so hard for Razel and nothing happened? Someone who was so special and Hashem took her away from us. Great, great question. And I think it's very important to correct a misconception. Every prayer that a person prays for somebody has a tremendous impact in this world or in the next world. Sometimes we're praying for somebody who's very sick and we pray and pray and pray and God says no and the person passes away and we feel that all the prayers were in vain. It was like a waste of time, heaven forbid. You have to know that that is a mistaken conception. Every prayer that you ever shear and utter for the sake of a human being and a soul has an incredible powerful impact. Prayer changes reality. Prayer brings down flow into the world. Sometimes the prayer is effective in this world. Sometimes the prayer benefits the soul in its journey to the next world. But every single prayer for Razel has a very powerful impact on her soul that she is very aware of and those who are connected to her soul. Even though the prayers were not answered the way we wanted them, which is true. Next question. Very good questions. Wouldn't it make sense... That the lead up to Mashiach be positive. Since there is nothing more positive than Mashiach, that would be great if everything leading up to Mashiach would only be positive. Yeah. But sadly, in the world that leads to Mashiach, there's a lot of positive and there's also a lot of pain. You're right. What about the silence of Akadush Baruchu? He's the most silent. We say it every day, Who is like you, powerful one, like God? And the Gemara says in Yuma, Elim is like the word "Elam," which means mute. You know on Zoom, mute, unmute, mute, unmute? Elam is a mute. Who is as mute as you, God? Who knows how to remain silent? Because Hashem is really the source of everything and the energy of everything, and yet he puts us, he puts a lack on his lips. He remains disguised, silent, concealed, and allows himself even to be perceived as absent, even though he is the one responsible for that perception that he's absent. That's also from him. God is the ultimate silent one, the ultimate silent. And that's the point. You're touching something very deep. Our silence is the way to connect to God's silence. Our expressions could connect to God's expressions. But what allows us to connect to God's silence, to God's inner core, which is not manifested because it's silent. It's only our own silence. You explain the stages of a soul's journey up until the 12 months point. I guess they're completely connected to the other world. Do they feel less connected to their children and family? Is it harder for the family to access and connect to the neshama after a 12-month point? Excellent question. And the truth is, I would say that it demands from all of us to go into a higher place ourselves. Because since the neshama goes through its own elevation... And after 12 months, the journey is drastically changing. So the connection always remains. But in order to be able to facilitate this connection, it behooves us to also allow ourselves to be elevated somewhat. And the more elevated we are, the more we can facilitate this relationship. But certainly the soul remains connected after 12 months and after 12 years. A father is always a father. A mother is always a mother a loved one is always a loved one and souls remain connected but in this world I want to be able to uplift myself and elevate myself to be able to tune in uh, somewhat to the elevation of the soul the Lubavitcher Rebbe said that if 10 people actually wanted Mashiach then he would come aren't there more than 10 people now who truly want Mashiach why isn't he here <sighs> If I recall, the Rebbe's talk uh, accurately, the twenty eighth of Nisan, nineteen ninety one, the Rebbe said, "May it be the will of God, mihi rotzen that there should be from among you ten people who will truly and tenaciously and stubbornly affect God's mind to bring Mashiach." So there's two, two things. First of all, about those ten people, I don't know. You know, I'm not the judge to know the levels of people's hearts. But the Rebbe would always say that the reason Mashiach did not come, he cannot understand. I heard this from the Rebbe himself. The Rebbe said, I don't know why Mashiach did not come. It's long overdue. There's a reason completely beyond me. He said, according to Tyra's wisdom, it's a phenomenon that is so enigmatic. Why did the Geula not come yet? It was a mystery of the divine that the Rebbe himself conceded that he doesn't understand. So you have to understand that the only one who knows and decides when Mashiach is coming is Hashem himself. How do you get rid of negative chatter in our head? How do we stay connected to Hashem 24 hours a day, seven days a week, when sometimes life gets overwhelming? Good, good question. Razel would have enjoyed these questions very much. The answer to you is, we can't always get rid of the negative chatter in our head. What we could do is quarantine the negative chatter, chatter in our head. I can't always get rid of the negative chatter, but I can put it in context. Instead of it defining me, I define it, which means instead of the negative chatter ruling my life, I can give it respect and allow it to be, but not let it take over my life. An example, boxy driver. You ever driving a car? And there's a backseat driver who tells you, take the light, take the light, take the light. The guy doesn't know how to drive and he's driving you crazy. You have three options. Option number one is you throw him out of the car. Problem is you can't. Okay. Option number two is you give him the steering wheel. That's a disaster. He'll get into an accident. Option number three is you know that he's a backseat driver. He has ideas and you are holding on to the steering wheel. We are the rulers of our life. Every morning, spend time in prayer and meditation in which you connect to your inner core, to your inner values, to your inner soul. That will not get rid of the chatter. But what it will allow you to do is that throughout the day when the chatter comes, you don't give it the steering wheel. You remain in the car in the driver's seat. Should one fear death? Fagey wants to know, should one fear death? And what do you think I'm going to answer you? Learn from Razel. It's not a way to live when you're fearing death. We should not fear death. We must be able, (laughs) I said we must. Isaac Bashevis Singer, the famous Yiddish writer, once said, he says, we have to believe in free choice. We got no choice. And I have to, I'm going to say to you, you can't live a life in which you're constantly fearful of death. It's not a way to live. <laughs> and it's not a way to die either. It's not It's not how to live. We are always in God's hands. Every moment of life is a miracle. I mean, if I would have told you three months ago, you know, if I would have told you Hanukkah time, by the way, You know that this year, at some point, all your kids are going to come home, and every school in the world is going to close down, and every school is going to close down, and most businesses are going to close down, and you would look at me, and you would declare me officially insane, unless there's a third world war, or some, God forbid, nuclear, uh, you know, atomic war. And it happened. It happened through a invisible virus. An invisible virus shut down the whole world, brought 7.7 billion people to its knees, what this tells us is, don't take any day for granted. You could be perfectly healthy. Don't take it for granted. Every moment we are in the loving embrace of Hashem. The question is not if we're vulnerable or not. The question is if we admit it to ourselves or not. We are always vulnerable. eretz Toila You know how vulnerable this planet is? You know how many things have to go right in order for us to be able to breathe in oxygen? Do you know how many things have to go right for us to be able to have light? For us to be able to have heat? For us to be able to have warmth? Do you know how many things have to go right for us to be able to have water? For us to be able to have the gases that we need? For us to be able to have produce? Do you know how many Not 10 things, not 100 things, not 1,000 things. How many millions, billions, trillions things have to go right in the whole planet and never mind in your own body. In your own body, you need 75 trillion cells to be functioning for everything to go right. How exactly does this happen? We are always vulnerable. Every single moment of life, we are absolutely vulnerable. The question is, do I admit it or do I not admit it? And does that cause me fear or it actually causes me a very deep joy? That's a choice that we make in our attitude. When you realize how vulnerable you are, you could do one of two things. You can either surrender to this despair and fear and tension and anxiety, or you can actually surrender to God's infinite and loving embrace and seize every moment and celebrate every day. And that's what I would suggest Fagi for you to do to the best of your ability. Does a person consciously experience after death so they know what's happening? The soul experiences, the soul knows. In fact, the consciousness of the soul is far more acute than our consciousness. Our consciousness is very limited by the physical experience of the body. The consciousness of a soul is actually infinite. So the soul is deeply aware in ways that are even profounder than our understanding of consciousness. Can the neshama feel pain? Hannah wants to know. Yes, a soul feels pain, and a soul feels joy. Zalman, why are the mirrors covered in a shiva house? Um, I don't remember. (laughs) I don't remember. I saw a reason. I have to research it. If you email me, I'll look it up. You can email me, Rabbi YY at theyeshiva.net. Rabbi YY at the yeshiva.net because I don't remember the answer now. I am so grateful for that analogy of the backseat driver. Brilliant. Okay, I think we'll take two more questions and uh, we'll move on, right? Is that fine, Rabbi Friedman? We can take two more questions? Okay. Whew, wow. Here we go. Yered, with the resurrection of the dead we have outstanding prophecies about will all who merited elamhaba be resurrected? Would, wouldn't the Jews and Israelites end up outnumbering the Gentiles? Well, the Avodah HaKadosh writes that resurrection applies also to pious Gentiles. That's what the great Kabbalist Reb ben Gabai writes. Rifka, our illnesses or misfortunes a consequence of our misdoings or actions. The answer to that is, this is a very, very loaded topic, and we don't always know. Sometimes yes, sometimes not. When I go and daven at a person's grave, I'm almost embarrassed. I feel like they can see through us, and perhaps I'm doing stuff in my life incorrectly. I feel like they fulfilled their purpose, they're so pure, and I have not yet. Please, can Rabbi Y.Y. comment on this? Yeah to something very humbling when you go to the resting place of somebody in a cemetery. And the answer to that is not to go. I think the answer is to really be able to make an honest reckoning of how we are living our lives on a daily basis. I am grateful for the message, but there's no way to wrap ourselves around many of the things that are happening in our world, sickness, suffering... Thank you for not trying to explain when there's no obvious explanation. I guess it's God knows what he's doing. Thank you for the message. Beautiful. Yeah, very well. Okay, let me see if there's any more questions in chat. And I'm going to wish you a good night. The hour is a little late. Zalman stumped the rabbi. Okay, shout out for Zalman for stumping the rabbi. Excellent. Uh, next. Okay, you are a real star. Okay, share that with my mother-in-law. Thank you, Rabbi, we learned so much. Thank you. How do you feel more connected with the Rebbe? A connection with the Rebbe, you feel connected with the Rebbe when you become the type of person the Rebbe taught us to be. I think that's the deepest way to feel connected to the Rebbe. When you become that manifestation of those ideas and teachings that the Rebbe embodied in his life and taught to anybody who wished to listen. How does Mashiach feel like? You mean, how will Mashiach's coming feel like? It's going to feel awesome. I'm sitting here with one of your biggest fans, my mother. We're grateful that you took the time to honor my cousin. Hope you continue teaching. Thank you very much. And welcome, Rebbe Sin Sharfstein. It's an honor to have you. Thank you for your beautiful tribute. Okay, I also want to uh, welcome Razel's immediate family, many of them who are here, uh, the Muchkin family. I don't know if her parents are on, but I know that siblings, I see some of the siblings are on. I also see Shalom Sholember, Zucker's father, is with us, and I want to welcome him. I also want to welcome all of the many relatives who are here and all of the many friends who are here. And everybody who's here, this was a very moving tribute, and I am thankful for the schus to be able to share to share these ideas and feelings with you. I send you all my deepest love and prayers and blessings. Chazak, chazak May we all be here for each other, and may we emerge from this deeper, wiser, more blessed, more loving. May we operate on a level of consciousness which always sees the infinite love embedded in each of us and the infinite unity that always and forever connects us to each other, to Rezel, and to all of the Jewish people. My dearest friends, I love you, and I bless you with bracha and atzlacha. May we hear good news from each other, May we hear good news on all fronts. May God give strength and solace and comfort to all those who need it, recovery to all those who need it. And may we very, very speedily experience that moment when the silence will be transformed into the infinite revelation of that which today we can't see, we can just be silent about, but that silence will be transformed into the infinite revelation as a new dawn descends upon our world with our ultimate and universal redemption through Mashiach Tzatkainu, may it happen very, very speedily in our days. Thank you and good night. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.